Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, April 4th, we're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. Jesus faces another challenge from his opponents during Holy Week. This time, the Sadducees take their shot at trapping Jesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. Great to be with you. As we get started this morning, let's talk context. We're in Luke 20. What do we need to know about the context to help us into the text? Well, just as you said, we are in Holy Week here with um, the, the Lucan text, uh, moving away from Jesus being set towards Jerusalem and being, being there. What you notice in Luke especially, though, is just how much of his time during Holy Week Christ spends at the temple complex, at the temple mount. And here in um, Luke 20 and previously in Luke 19, we see that he really immediately makes his way to the temple mount after the triumphal entry. And he does so to do, I suppose, um, battle, so to speak, with those who were either misrepresenting or misunderstanding God's word. He first drives out the prophet-motivated merchants from the temple, and he's done verbal battle with the prestige-motivated chief priests and scribes, and now the Sadducees have their turn um, to ask Jesus a question, which we'll find uh, is an insincere one that Jesus is able to turn around and um, give us some great teaching about what the resurrection is like. So with Jesus' opponents, I mean, what what's he up to in all this? He, he's not just besting them, showing that he's smarter than them. What's he doing here? Well, the Lord has come back to his temple, um, I think, is a way that we can look at this, is he is the incarnate word of God, the theme that's so clear for us in John's gospel, but is true, of course, also of Christ in the Lucan account. And he is giving us God's truth from God's own lips. Um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes have come to Uh, misunderstand and misrepresent God's word. And Christ comes as a corrective to that, where perhaps they'd misunderstood out of ignorance. He's patient with them and and willing to to teach. But whereas they may have been misrepresenting God for their own personal gain, uh, he comes to set the record straight. The other thing we should realize, too, is that Christ is not just speaking to his questioners. Others are listening in. Um, and you can just imagine a crowd around Christ at the Temple Mount uh, that would mirror the rabbis and and the teachers who had surrounded him when he was there at 12 years old. Now here at the end of his ministry, he's teaching once again in the same place. How does his upcoming death, the fact that, you know, he knows he's just a couple days away from suffering and dying, how does that affect his, his tone, do you think? There's an urgency, certainly, to what Christ says, as there is an urgency to anyone in their words when we know someone is coming to the end of their life. Um, we hang on every word of a loved one who is Uh, slowly passing from this life into the next. We cherish every experience we have with them. We remember the last things they said to us, and everyone knows that. So the the person speaking, here Christ, is going to speak um, intently, plainly, um, words that are not cryptic or or strange or hard to understand, no parables here during Holy Week, but um, instead a plain teaching that is 
uh, able to be quickly understood and applied given the situation. Mm. Yeah, even I mean, he does he does tell one parable previously, but even that one they get right away. Yeah, uh, it's, the the idea of the messianic secret is yeah. no longer there. Now is the time that uh, that it is all to be revealed and seen and understood and believed. Yeah, yeah, he's not holding back here. He's he's not pulling any punches. He's going to give it to him straight. So we've got the Sadducees versus Jesus today. Let's read the text. We're in Luke 20, beginning at verse 27. There came to him, to Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. That's our text for today. That's Luke 22, verses 27 to 40. So Sadducees, some Sadducees come to Jesus. And if I'm not mistaken, this is actually the first time we meet the Sadducees in the gospel, according to St. Luke. He tells us here briefly, they deny that there's a resurrection. What all do we need to know about the Sadducees to understand this interaction? Well, the first thing we'll notice about the Sadducees, as you mentioned, they only occur here in Luke. And they actually, reference to them occurs rarely in the Bible, generally. Um, They, of course, were not a party that was around during the time of the Old Testament. This group of Sadducees um, emerged as a movement during the intertestamental period. Um, They are mentioned only 15 times in the Bible, of course, all in the New Testament. Um, In Matthew, we see that we don't get much extra information about them. It's the phrase Pharisees and Sadducees, just as one lumped together term is used often. Um, They are said to say that there's no resurrection there, but that doesn't give us any additional um, clues. Mark, no additional clues either. There's just this parallel passage. Uh, The Sadducees aren't in the Gospel of John at all. Um, And here in Luke, um, the the only reference is this. So the other places we can go are uh, just to Acts. They're mentioned nowhere in any of the epistles. So in Acts, we have um, three different passages where the Sadducees are mentioned and we learn certain things about them. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, we see that the Sadducees are closely linked together as far as um, having an alliance with the priests and the captain of the temple. There's some question as to whether the Sadducees were priests or not. Um, It's not necessary for us to to say that they are, but they certainly were in cahoots together. Um, Acts chapter 5 shows that the Sadducees were with the high priest um, in his cause to go out and arrest the apostles and put them in public prison and apparently had the authority to do so. So we understand that they were a group with considerable um, political power. And then in Acts chapter 23, uh, where Paul is appearing before the council in Jerusalem, we see there that the council is made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. Other sources make us believe that perhaps the Sadducees even um, 
had a little more pull in the council than the Pharisees did. And Paul masterfully plays on this division in the council because he gives witness that the heart of the issue of his trial is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So he goes to that, that one issue there that he knows the Sadducees are hung up on. Um, the assembly is divided there because the Pharisees believe in a resurrection, the Sadducees don't. And finally, there are a couple extra details there in Acts 23. It says not only that they don't believe in the resurrection, but they also do not believe in angel or spirit, it says. So that's what we know from the biblical text. Um, but there are a few things that we can find out as well from outside of the Bible that I think we can rely upon with a relative amount of certainty. Um, if we want to look at extra biblical sources, that primarily comes from the Jewish historian Josephus. And in his writings, he characterizes the Sadducees as being even more severe than the Pharisees in the manner in which they would uh, punish offenders. So we see them as, as a very severe group. He lays out the differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees, which are important for us to know. The Pharisees, the big problem with them was that they believed in the oral law, the tradition of the fathers, this um, this teaching that came alongside the written word and was meant to be a hedge around it, was meant to give clarity to it. Um, the Sadducees saw that as a problem, as something that would take away from the authority of the word itself, which we might actually be pretty um, pretty open to their, their view on that. The problem is that um, the Sadducees went so far with that conservatism, so to speak, on what texts were authoritative, that they only regarded the text that they believed was well fixed. And the only texts they believed were well fixed are the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, um, and they rejected the rest of what we call the Tanakh, which is the, the Jewish way to speak of the Old Testament, uh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kethubim, um, the prophets and the writings, they completely do away with and don't see as any, any authority at all. So it helps us understand perhaps why they don't believe in a resurrection or in spirit or an angel. Um, they're not playing with a full deck. They, they don't have all the source material that's necessary. And they reject these more spiritual aspects of the scriptures because they're not in the in the books that they regard as clearly as they're revealed in the other places. Mm. I, I mean, I've heard them referred to. It's interesting you called them conservative because I've heard them called liberals, theological yeah. liberals, mm -hmm. uh, because of I think because of the way that they jettison parts of the scriptures and the way that they tend to deny you know these spiritual aspects, the resurrection, the angels, the spirits. So, I mean, it's almost like the pendulum swung too far the other way and they ended up denying all these good things. Yeah, essentially they're not, um, they're not conservative in their moral convictions based on the text, but they're conservative almost in an academic sense of which texts they will regard as real and true. And we see that same dynamic, I think, play out today um, when certain scholars would like to undermine the authority of scripture. They don't generally undermine all of it at once. They'll throw out what they believe to be the most um, unbelievable text, and they're right. left with a portion of Scripture, which then leads to a very morally liberal um, outlook. So an academic rigor that's not even warranted, an academic yeah. um, skepticism, yeah. then leads to a moral uh, laxity right. Um, right. on the other end. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, and that, that cut-and-paste project that happens is so often made after our own image if we're going to try yeah. it. You know, it's it's not it ends up not being based on academic rigor but on parts that 
I find believable or, mm-hmm. or parts that I like or parts that I don't like that use usually becomes the, the standard by which I do this. I'm going to get rid of that part and keep this part. It's all about my image of scripture. Right, right. It, it really is. And I think another thing we should talk about with the Sadducees is to really let this um, sink in the fact that they don't believe in an afterlife at all. Um, that's almost unthinkable to us. In fact, in the American mind, we would even say, what's the point of a religion if it doesn't lead to something after death? However, in, uh, you know, pagan cultures, the idea is there's a God up there in the sky. If I make him happy, he'll give me the stuff I want. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a very temporal type of relation. Oftentimes it's, it's a higher form of religion really to begin to think about the afterlife and what lies after death. Hmm. And that's certainly present in many pagan religions, but it's transactional more so. Now today we have people who don't regard an afterlife because they think we have, um, oh, they think we have become wise enough to no longer believe the myths, so to speak. Hmm. But, um, I think there are some, some interesting parallels between people who, uh, today might say they don't believe anything happens after you die, but they still in a time of trouble might be calling out to heaven to some unknown God. Hmm. Um, so the Sadducees, in a sense, I almost view it as a, a somewhat of a parallel to sort of the functional agnosticism that many people carry around today. Um, they, they want God when they need him in this particular life for a particular thing, but they don't raise their their understanding or their eyes to the possibility of, of heaven in an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Give, give me more of that one. That, that's quite a bit to chew on this, the functional agnosticism. I want God to help me here and now, but that's it. You're saying that that's similar to the Sadducees, or at least it maybe is, we can relate to the way the Sadducees, the effect that their theology would have had. Right. So um, there are many people today and many people I grew up with in the church, not necessarily in my church, but in churches around me, Um, if I were to look them up, you know, 20 years later and say, Hey, what do you believe today? Many of them in my generation would say, you know, I used to believe all that stuff, but I really, I I just believe I don't have the uh, ability to claim anything about God or the afterlife. And I really do think that when we die, that's it. Hmm. Now that same person though, if I call them, um, after a cancer diagnosis, I, I don't think that that light agnosticism is going to be so durable as to give them some kind of outlook there. They'll be looking out for some kind of a a hope Mm. uh, of of help in this life. And, you know, that's an open door. And I think there's an open door here with these Sadducees too. They know the scriptures. And when Jesus speaks to them about how the scriptures, even in the the Torah, the books of Moses, speak about life after death, there's there's a hope for them to raise their eyes from this temporal life into the possibility of the next. But um, I think there are some parallels there in some way, shape, or form, especially as we consider the Sadducees tended to be a bit of more cosmopolitan types in their day, too. Sure. I think that's an interesting observation that one who, for the most part, ignores any sort of afterlife, ignores the resurrection of the dead, and focuses entirely on this life. When this life is threatened, then that door becomes open. And, And I think then sometimes, because you, you know, you mentioned are in our American context to think that there is no heaven, if we can say it that way, seems unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And so it strikes me that, that it's very possible when that cancer diagnosis comes or whatever it is that makes this person think, oh, maybe I do need to be concerned with what happens to me after death. Sometimes it swings way too far to what I think is, is unfortunately common among, among some American Christians is that, well, everybody's going to go to heaven. 
you know, uh, and, and it, yeah. I mean, it's almost like it swings too far and, and okay, well, I need to think about it. Well, if there is one, then sure, I'll get in. No problem. Cause you know, he got in or she got in. So certainly I would. And, you know, the Christian truth of the resurrection, which is found in Christ alone, is kind of right there in the middle of those two extremes. Yeah, the American mindset, you can't say what it is anymore. I mean, it's just a complete mixed bag. One survey will tell you one thing, another will tell you another. I read a social survey the other day that said more Americans are certain that hell exists than certain that heaven exists. Interesting. I have no idea where that comes from. It doesn't stand to to the experience I've had in talking with people. But Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, we don't know what we believe. And that's why the authoritative word speaking into that void is such an important thing and such a, a balm for for hungry hungry souls. Hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. And the fact that Jesus then takes this opportunity to teach the truth and gives us truth about the resurrection in this text is, is so helpful for us as we seek to speak truth into our our world today. In terms of the Sadducees then coming to Jesus at this moment, you know, I think you you said they don't have any good purpose here. They're they're out to trick Jesus. Luke doesn't say that specifically. We know that from the the parallel accounts. But in bringing up the resurrection, which in every reference that you gave earlier, whether from the New Testament or from Josephus, that's kind of their real big distinctive is that they don't believe in the resurrection. Is there something within Holy Week that Jesus has been teaching that that's what they want to bring up? Or is that just kind of their bone to pick, do you think? Is there, I mean, is there some, is there more reason for bringing up the resurrection to Jesus at this point than just it's their turn to, to take a shot at him? Well, I guess my understanding so far has been that it's their turn to take a shot at him, but I don't know if you've got a theory yourself. No, I I don't. I'm just, I'm just, it strikes me that they come to him now, they bring up the resurrection. The the only thing that I can think is that they have been listening to what Jesus has been saying. And he quoted from Psalm 118 previously, where he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which when we hear that as Christians, we hear reference to both Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And I wonder if they're paying attention to that and that's what brings up their dispute, or if this is, again, this is just kind of the enemies of Jesus are lining up it's their turn. They're going to give it a go. They fail. But I, I wonder if there's, you know, something within the the teaching of Jesus that they've picked up that they say, you know, we need to ask him about it particularly. Yeah, well, I think I think he might. First off, the fact that Christ preaches a gospel that is for more than the here and now, that promises uh, eternal life, uh, that promises resurrection to new life is unmistakable in his ministry. So his ministry is completely unsadgisaic um, to, uh, to anyone who observes what's right. going on there. I think what they're really trying to do here is to get him to not sort of blaspheme, for lack of a better term, against the Sadducees' viewpoint. Um, if the Sadducees really do have a lot of pull on the council, it's, it's their ability to gather evidence against him, I suppose. If he answers the riddle at the end and says, oh, you know, uh, she belongs to wife number uh, three, or husband number three, rather, um, well, then they can take that and they say, see, he believes in this resurrection thing. We don't like that. All the more cause. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know if we can get any further into their motivation other than that. But what I do think is interesting is to view the the question they ask him not as a question, but as a riddle. Okay. Um, so tell us, tell us about the riddle then, because there, there's a lot of background information here. It seems kind of a, an odd situation. There's not too many families that have seven brothers anymore, but then this idea that one brother after another marries the same woman because 
the brothers have died without giving any children. This is just entirely foreign to our world today. So tell us, take us into this riddle, the world of the riddle that they tell. It's a situation that is meant to be absurd and is really unreproducible in real human life. So um, it's it's the question of how many angels fit on the head of a pin, or did Adam? <laughs> but they don't believe buttons? in angels, so right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so the idea is this is supposed to be something to trip him up. It almost sounds like the setup to a joke in a sense, um, which helps me understand why this is not sincere. They're not seeking after knowledge here. Um, however, it's not that there's no background in any kind of uh, legitimate scriptural text that this ridiculous situation comes out of the idea of a man whose brother dies and he has no, no children. And then the man marries the widow and and so forth and so on uh, is uh, attested to us in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Um, It's a practice that's referred to as leveret marriage. Um, Leveret um, is from the uh, Latin for brother-in-law. It's not for the Levites or Leviticus or anything like that. But what it means is that in the case of a married man who has no children, the Old Testament does command that the man's surviving brother is obligated to enter into a marriage and sexual relationship with the widow, and that that widow will then become his wife, his additional wife. Um, Then the first son from that union of the brother-in-law and the widow uh, would be regarded as belonging to the deceased brother, And that would be for the purposes of continuing the name of the brother, the inheritance rights that would have belonged to the dead man. Mm -hmm. And then after that, any subsequent children that were born to the couple would be regarded as the children of the living brother. So um, it's it's almost an adoption Mm post-mortem in a strange legal sense there. Now, that's unthinkable in our society. but it was necessary in theirs. Um, first off, I mean, I think we should say this is not incestuous, right? Um, this is brother-in-law. I mean, it doesn't make it much better to our modern ears, but it helps us understand. Um, but the allotments of land that are given to the people in the promised land are, are fixed and set. And we have the practice of the Jubilee and all of these things where uh, any land that's in hawk is returned to its rightful owners. So if you don't have a male line to continue those lines of inheritance, you can end up in some very strange situations regarding the land and who it belongs to. Mm. Um, so that's, that's very important. Also, the other thing that's important is that this widowed and childless woman needs to be cared for. Right. So no son means um, no young man to, to help support his aging um, mother. And a widowed woman without a child would have almost no social or economic security in those days. So this is actually a gracious practice in the scriptures. And this isn't the only place that we see it play out. Um, of course, this is um, what underlies the idea of the practice of, of leveret marriage and the story of Ruth and, mm-hmm. and her eventual marriage to Boaz. Now, Boaz is not a brother-in-law, but it was recognized not only the letter of the law of Deuteronomy 25, but also the spirit of the law that a further relative would also have a moral obligation to marry Um, the widow if no closer relative was found. All right. So there's the Old Testament background. And again, you can check that out in Deuteronomy 25. And the story of Ruth really hinges on this practice. How then do the Sadducees take that practice, which as they note is given by Moses, that's the part of the scriptures they accept. How do they take that practice and then pose this riddle, set this trap for Jesus? Well, the whole trap is is eventually the, the closing line is, 
the question in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman, woman be? I mean, this could be a case of, of casuistry or how does this work, Jesus? You know, exegete Deuteronomy 25 for us. Does she marry the third brother or does she stop after the second? But that's not what they're asking. Um, they, at the end, ask a question that they know is something they don't believe in. This is not un- dissimilar from the way that sometimes people will question us as Christians. Um, you know, they'll say, they'll say things with a sarcastic tone, you know, oh, you just believe you're going to float around in the clouds forever playing a harp with a halo on your head. Um, that's not the time for us to have a disputation over, well, actually, we don't become angels and we wouldn't have halos. We're, you know, we're still humans. That, that's not what's being asked. Um, it's, it's a question that's meant to bite. So I think in this, we should see they're trying to lash out at Christ to make him look foolish. And by this absurd situation to make the idea of the resurrection or an afterlife at all look foolish, to picture a woman with seven men in heaven that have a marriage claim upon her in the resurrection, um, they would say, well, well, that uh, shocks the conscience that there would be seven men that would have a, a marital claim upon one woman at the same time. Therefore, the idea of the resurrection is ridiculous. Uh, and that's what's going on here. Okay. So, and, and I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, it, technically could be casuistry, but that is not the Sadducees intention here. They're, they're not asking Jesus for information on something that they know has happened. And they're not really asking him for information on something that could potentially happen. They've set up an unthinkable situation all with the purpose of proving they think that the resurrection is not real. How, how does this work? It can't. So there must not be a resurrection. That's their point. They're asking the question in bad faith. Sometimes people ask us questions in bad faith too. And if they do, we don't have an obligation to engage. If somebody's asking a question in good faith, we're patient. Um, but what's amazing here is that Jesus is going to, um, instead of walking away from the conversation, is going to really masterfully turn the conversation in such a way that he's able to speak the truth to them and to those who are hearing in a way that's going to be pretty compelling. Yeah, he's going to take this bad faith question and turn it into an opportunity to teach the truth. And we'll pick up more of Jesus' answer on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about Luke 20 with Pastor Nate Hill. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharp Iron. It is Monday, April 4th. We're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we mentioned that the Sadducees here are not asking a question in good faith, and Jesus is going to give an answer. But before we look at that answer, I'm curious as, as to your thoughts. You've said that folks will ask Christians questions in bad faith still today. I, I can't recall any off the top of my head. I know there's like on Twitter, there's this group called, I think, Atheist 
posting their W's or something like that, mm. where they, you know, they'll put these sorts of scenarios up there. How could this possibly be that a flood was over the whole world or, you know, any number of questions from the, from the Bible that are not asked in good faith. And you talked a little bit about responding to those that we're not obligated to respond to those. What, what do you mean? How, how do we discern that as Christians today as to what the best way to respond to some of these bad faith questions really is? Well, I think the first thing we would say is God does give us an intuition. Our intuition is not always right, um, but it's often right. And, and when we sense that someone is asking a question to tear down our faith publicly, to make it look ridiculous to others, or perhaps to probe into our own understanding of our faith in such a way that it will cause undue doubt in our own hearts, um, we're best to walk away from that conversation to say um, that I don't want to engage here because really it, we're not going to come to a deeper understanding of God's truth absent his word. So if we're just going to sit around the campfire and, you know, try and figure things out hypothetically, uh, we're not getting anywhere. So even when, it, so when a, a person does question us about, you know, what do you believe about, you know, heaven or hell or any of this, it doesn't, it needs to be a conversation on the basis of God's word, that we bring God's word to bear in that conversation. Now, God's word is not um, compelling and persuasive to those who have hardened their hearts. Um, it's not going to be something that they're going to regard as an authority. Uh, another church sign in your town as I was driving up actually said something pretty good. I was proud of them. <laughs> it said, uh, some things have to be believed in order to be seen. Um, and, and I actually like that. That's the first good church sign I've seen in a while. <laughs> um, so the Holy Spirit needs to be opening the heart of someone to, to ask questions they want the answer to uh, for this to work out well. Um, what was the original question? I don't. How do we respond to insincere questions? Oh, yeah. And how do we discern, you know, the best ways at times? You know, so do we do we engage? Do we not? How do we engage? That's kind of what we're talking. I think about. we feel guilty for not engaging. Sure. Um, and and I think the thing I would say is don't feel guilty for not engaging. I mean, what do you do when the telemarketer calls you and asks you, <laughs> um, you know, if if your car warranty is out? You hang up. Um, you don't sit there and say, no, I'm pretty sure my car warranty really is still in force. You, you just recognize and walk away. You don't let the person have their, their pleasure in goading you. Um, and Christ, similarly, um, you know, he doesn't dance before Herod and put on a show. Hmm. Um, he is silent before Pilate. Um, that's also a Christian example to us. So we want to be all, always ready to give an answer for our faith. Um, but also Christ is silent before his accusers. Yeah. Yeah, we can we can make a good confession of Christ, even if we don't play the game that others want to play, mm -hmm. the game that they put before us. And and there are times where making that good confession doesn't doesn't mean just sort of bowing to whatever the rules that are set are. As in this case, now Jesus is he makes good confession, but he doesn't bow to their rules. He doesn't play by their rules. He gives the answer that is true and right. And I think, and I, I'd have to go back and look, and maybe I'll, I'll flip to it as, as I'm talking here. It seems to me, you know, that Jesus, as it's recorded in, in Matthew or Mark, he, he tells them, haven't you read these things? You know, he, he's not afraid to mock or mm -hmm. use satire of, for his opponents to show them the truth. And there is a, a time and a place. Now, it's, we want to be kind, and this is, I think, what you're talking about. Sometimes we feel guilty. We don't want to be rude. 
but we can be direct. Yeah, sometimes that'll get people's attention too. If their picture of Christians or maybe even Christian pastors is that they're always, you know, just milk toast and, you know, kind and pushovers. Sometimes if you say something that'll stick in their head, it makes a difference. I remember I had a a person run into me in town one time, a member of my congregation, I love him to death, but they had, uh, they'd said, pastor, I haven't seen you in a while uh, or I haven't seen you around. And I said, oh, I've been around um, and, and you've been around, but maybe you've been around the wrong places. Um, saw him in church three weeks in a row after that. Yeah. It, it stuck in his mind. And it was, it was said with a smile and, and in jest, but it, it was a different response than he had expected mm. and it stuck in his mind. Yeah. Yeah. There, and again, the, I think the point is there are many ways to make the good confession and they don't all have to be sort of bending over backwards to try to not offend. Sometimes mm-hmm. you simply have to speak the truth. That truth may offend, but that's the truth that's needed. And so I think Jesus does set an example here in a willingness to engage with them, with these Sadducees who have ill intent, but to do so in a way that isn't going to yield ground that isn't his to yield. He doesn't need to yield the ground because it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to him. So he's going to teach the truth, even in this bad faith question, without giving them any kind of upper hand. Right. right. It works well for Jesus every time. It doesn't always work well for us, but it is something to, to pay attention to, I think, as we see Jesus engage throughout Holy Week. So then let's take a look at his answer. Again, they've got this ridiculous riddle in front of Jesus. Seven brothers all had one wife. What it's going to be, what it'll be like in the resurrection, Jesus. How does Jesus begin to dig into this riddle and give some truth in all this ridiculousness? Okay, so the key of what Jesus does in his answer is he realizes that there is a difference between this age and what he refers to as that age. And if we emphasize those two terms correctly here and understand the contrast Christ is making, it makes sense the way he hinges the question. So remember, their question was, um, you know, uh, eight lines on this weird thing about what happens in this age and then a little snippet at the end about, well, what's going to happen in that age because of this? He mirrors this. He gives them a very short answer about this age, and then he expounds upon what things are like in that age. So he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. And that's it. That's all he talks about regarding their strange scenario. And then he says, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. He says, he takes the opportunity, the little nugget of resurrection talk that they 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 open the door for and he he bursts his way right in and says you want to open the door to the resurrection i'll open the door to the resurrection and show you a reality that you'd never even before considered okay so the key or yeah part of the key of recognizing jesus answer is that the sadducees want to equate this age with the resurrection age as if it's a one-to-one correspondence and jesus just cuts that line of argument off right away he says in this age, the scenario you said, I mean, he doesn't really say whether it could be true or not. He says marriage happens in this age, but we can't draw a one-to-one correspondence for the resurrection age. And the the real key, I think, to, to even going farther than that is that they can't die anymore. That phrase in yep. verse 36, that's what the real difference is between this age and marriage as it exists and that age and the way life is in the resurrection. Yeah, so think about it. Uh, now, we do understand that marriage is a good gift of God given before the fall into sin, before death was a reality. Um, however, 
the central purpose of marriage is the procreation of the next generation of life, which is necessary because the previous generations of life are expiring and dying. Mm. So if death is taken out of the equation, um, marriage as it happens today becomes different. It becomes less, I don't want to say less relevant, but less functionally necessary for the production of the replacements mm. to, to come into the next generation. So if we posit a world where no one dies, we can't even conceive of that world. Why would we believe that that world works in exactly the same way ours does today? Confirmation kids will always ask, so you mean if Adam and Eve didn't eat from the fruit of the garden, they wouldn't have died. Do you know where I'm going with this? No, keep going. How would we have all fit on the uh, earth? Do they ask you no, that No, I've too? never gotten that one okay. before. Oh, I get that one all the time. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I guess God <laughs> would have figured something out. Um, God would have brought Elon Musk 2,000 years earlier to send us to Mars and terraform it. I don't know. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pro- procreation is a good gift in the garden, but again, yeah, trying to equate these things, that's where we run into trouble. Right, right. It's the same thing where people have a very simple view of heaven. They say, oh, there's got to be Monday night football in heaven or it won't be heaven. Um, so we have to understand, we know what we know about the afterlife, about the resurrection life. Um, and we don't know what we don't know. You know, I've, I've told my uh, my students before that I'd say that what we have in the scriptures about heaven and about what it's like in the resurrection is like a travel brochure. I can look at it. I can understand the various things that are kind of there, but I'm not going to understand it until I walk through the door to see in, in its fullest, oh, this is what the pamphlet was really about. Mm. You know, um, I saw a two-dimensional image that I could only understand in the way my mind can conceive it. But when you walk in, um, the reality becomes even more clear. So he's giving us a glimpse of that reality where we're not concerned in the resurrection with, with being given in marriage and marriage. Um, we're not, cause those are temporal, temporal things that are needed in a temporal life. Whereas a life without death functions under different rules. Right. So to think that this situation concerning leveret marriage, which really functions only in a world where death exists, leveret marriage is not needed at all. Even, even not just considering marriage in general, but leveret marriage particularly would never be needed in a world where there is no death. And since that's what the resurrection is, their question is essentially invalid, but he does, I mean, and, and the relationships that we have now look different in some way, shape or form. And Jesus has given glimpses of this already in the gospels where he's talked about, you know, who are his mother and his brothers. It's those who hear the word of God and keep it, that the family relationships that we have are not the closest ties we have. They're actually the closer ties are the ones we have in Christ. And something is being said here as well about that marriage relationship. And so, I mean, sometimes this can be a bit troubling for people. I'm happily married right now in this age. And that is, as you said, a good gift of God it doesn't sound like it's going to be quite the same in the resurrection age. And that might trouble some people. What do we, what do we make of that? Yeah, it is troubling because anytime we think about something we've not yet experienced or under, understand, we we're afraid of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember clearly being afraid of going to heaven when I was a kid. Um, because I, I guess the pastor at some point had preached about how heaven is, you know, uh, well, if we have the foretaste of the feast to come and the divine service here, well, heaven's going to be like a big eternal worship service. And to my, you know, seven, eight, 
10-year-old ears, I thought, you mean it's like church that never ends? Um, and I was afraid of going. Um, uh, you were so impious as a young I, man. <laughs> I was, maybe still am. Um, if I'm going to be looking at the back of a gray head for eternity, I was uh, not understanding the, the, the joy of that. Um, but... <laughs> I know I forgot your question. We got off track. We're talking about th- how this might trouble oh, yeah, yeah. some today. So so if what we know in this world is all we can relate to, really, um, we're afraid of the unknown. Um, so what Christ doesn't, he's not giving us a picture of a world in which he tears apart our human relationships to where we don't even recognize our wives. Um, that's not what he's trying to tell us here. He's trying to tell us that it's, it's an existence in the resurrection that we can't yet understand because we're not there. Mm. But when we're there, it'll be a wonderful and a blessed existence uh, with great joy. Mm. Right. And again, there is no death there. And that's, that's what separates that age from this age in which we live right now. And the, the relationships that we have right now that we're talking about, husbands and wives, parents and children, these are good gifts of God they will be transformed in the resurrection because there are just, there are realities that are true now, namely death that won't be true then. And I think, you know, for as much as it could trouble, we always should keep in mind that whatever it ends up being, however it, it works in its particularities, it will be good because oh, yeah. we will be there with Christ and there will be no death. Oh, absolutely. And uh, sure beats the alternative. I mean, I don't know why we'd worry about this. That's right. Um, God's given us a wonderful world to live in with many blessings and it's been marred by sin. Um, so the world in which we will live in the resurrection, uh, will be incomprehensibly wonderful for us. There's another part of Jesus answer that we need to understand rightly because it could be taken in wrong directions. Jesus says that they can't die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. What does it mean that they are equal to angels in the resurrection? Good point. It doesn't mean we become angels, but it means that we share a certain commonality with them. And the commonality that we'll share with the angels in the resurrection is that both angels and humans are creatures of God. We all have a beginning point. Um, Angels, there was a time when the angels were not. There was a time when I was not. Um, Now in my temporal life, there's a time when my temporal life will come to an end, like two points on on a line. Um, but an angel's life is one that's not subject to death. And in the resurrection, my life will also not be subject to death either. So um, that's the point of comparison that Christ is trying to make. We're like the angels, not that we are. Right, right. And that that's an important thing. Again, when we think about the landscape of American Christianity and sometimes what is said about a Christian when they die becoming an angel, we want to make sure that we understand Jesus' words here correctly, that they, we are like angels in that we do not die in the resurrection. Now, As Jesus continues, having dismantled the entire ridiculous scenario that the Sadducees put in front of him, he's still not content with his good confession, but he needs to show the Sadducees that, in fact, the dead are raised. And if I were looking for a proof text for the resurrection, I wouldn't have chosen the one Jesus chooses. So how does Jesus show the Sadducees that, in fact, the dead are raised? Well, I'm curious which ones you would have chosen. Oh, I mean, I think of the the general Old Testament readings that I use for funerals would be, for example, Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives and 
not I, the Pentateuch. I, well, I know. See, then that's that's the thing. Isaiah 25 nope. is another good one. Lamentations 3. Uh-oh. Yeah, none of them are in the Pentateuch. So Jesus is, is working with their canon, it seems. That's it. That's exactly it. So he is, it's, it's similar to the way that we try and demonstrate the Trinity in Genesis 1, right? Um, it's not my proof text for the Trinity, but if I've got to show the Trinity in, in Genesis, that's the place you go. Well, one of the places you go in Genesis. So he, he goes to Moses and the, the burning bush of all places. And he says that Moses himself, the author of the Pentateuch shows that the dead are raised because Moses speaks of God. God speaks of himself as the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the three great patriarchs who have been long since dead. Hmm. Now he says he is the God of those three, speaking of them presently as if they are a present reality. Um, and that's how Jesus makes this point to them that God would not have identified him as himself as the God of someone dead. It would have made him a strange, you know, death God in a sense. Hmm. But he can speak of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as present realities because they are a present reality. Um, and then there are other, you know, portions of, you know, Moses is gathered to his fathers. There are other ways that we speak of the future hope beyond this world in the Pentateuch, too. But uh, that's where Jesus goes with it, and that's good enough for me. Oh, certainly. And and what I, what I love about his use of Exodus 3, uh, which is the passage that he quotes here, is not only the fact that he does choose a text that the Sadducees are going to recognize as authoritative, but just the way that he does interpret that passage to teach the resurrection, I think ought to open our own eyes as we read through other sections of the scriptures that we're kind of, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? Or what does this have to do with the resurrection? That it is okay and actually authoritative for us to say, yeah, the resurrection is taught there. Like for, I mean, even the phrase you use that he was gathered to his fathers. Well, that just is a euphemism for him dying, right? You're saying, no, that, that actually is talking about resurrection, eternal life. And that's a, that's a valid move because of the way Jesus teaches to interpret the old Testament. Yeah. Sometimes I think as I've come to understand the Bible more things that I used to think were a stretch, I don't necessarily think are a stretch anymore. Yeah. 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 Well, and this is one of those passages that, that the first time I really stopped and thought about it, you know, wait a second, God is talking to, to Moses there from the bush. He's telling him who he is. There's what, there's no resurrection talk there. And yet that's precisely what Jesus says that passage is about. Not to say that it's not about other things as well, but that he uses that text, I, I think ought to open our eyes to understand the old Testament in that more Christocentric Christ as center way of looking at those texts. Uh, and what a, what a marvelous way of reading the Old Testament. It really does open it up for us. So Jesus then has has shown the Sadducees, here's the resurrection, believe it. We don't actually get to hear from their reaction, though. We hear about some scribes. Take us into those those last two verses of this text. Yes, the last two verses say, then some of the scribes answers, answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now, I'll, I'll confess, when I was prepping for this today, the first time or two I read through it, um, in my mind, I read then some of the Sadducees answered, which is not what the text says, but you would just assume that the Sadducees are going to be the ones to respond, and they're not. The Sadducees are silent, but the scribes who had questioned him previously are still there listening. Mm. Um, so the scribes are the ones who know the scriptures inside and out, who were exposed not just to the Pentateuch, but the entirety of the Tanakh. 
Um, and they seem to be the, the fertile ground, I suppose, for the planting of, of Christ's word. Because what Christ says here makes sense to them. So the scribes, if anyone was going to say, that's a bad exegesis of this passage in Exodus. That's not what was meant at the burning bush. It would be the scribes. Um, but they buy it. And they say that he's spoken well and seem to be moved in the direction at least of, of consideration of Christ and his, his claims. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in, in the previous text in verse 19 of this same chapter, the scribes were among those who are trying to lay hands on Jesus and here they're willing to acknowledge something that he did well. Yeah. You, I do wonder if there's maybe a little bit of that animosity that exists between the Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, granted, they're not specifically named Pharisees, but it's not hard to imagine some Pharisees among the scribes. If they don't mind watching Jesus get a shot in on some of the folks that they don't particularly care for. Yeah. But but I think the larger point that you're making is, is well put, that to see how the word of God spoken in a, a direct way does still have an effect even on Jesus' enemies. Not to say they were converted. I don't think it says that at all. But that the word of God does remain authoritative even in this hostile situation, I think is a good reminder for us. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, and then they no longer dare to ask him any question. That just kind of propels us forward into the rest of Holy Week, I think. Mm-hmm. It sure does. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, because at this point, Jesus has been, again, they've been kind of lining up to take their swing at Jesus. They've all missed by now. And now Jesus is really going to turn back and go more on the offensive, if you will. He's he's going to take the fight more to them. He's going to speak about the end times before we get into what we would usually call his passion in chapter right. 22. Yeah, they can't get him with the verbal, uh, the verbal blows, but the physical blows are, are just on the horizon. That's right. That's right. So all this is setting the stage for what Jesus will do in his suffering, death, and his resurrection to save us sinners. So, Pastor Hill, just a, I mean, a few minutes here to talk about more application. Again, with we've, we've talked quite a bit about the matter of marriage and and the life and the world to come and this life. Again, about the the Sadducees and the way that they look at the scriptures and just sort of that. I think you were comparing it earlier to a, a, a agnostic way of life. I mean, how do we how do we take a text like this with this ridiculous situation? What do, what do we do with this as Christians? What are some of the things we need to draw from it? Well, if the biggest mistake the Sadducees ever made was excising certain portions of the Scripture from their their hearts and their minds, um, confining their beliefs solely to the books of Moses. Um, we might see a similarity in the way that many people cut out portions of the Word of God from their own personal canon, you might say. Um, some people say, well, I don't like Paul. He's too misogynistic. Um, or I don't like the Gospel of John. It seems too ethereal. Um, or I don't like the Old Testament because God seems meaner there. I like the nicer um, God in the New Testament. Or I don't like the miracles of Jesus, but I like his moral teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the Jesus turning the money tables over, but I like the one with him with the children. You know, it, it gets to a point where whatever you are focusing on in God's word and whatever you've pushed aside from God's word is going to have great implications for what you believe and, and what you, you believe to be true. Um, some people invent a God that has no law and all gospel, right? Some people invent a God who has no gospel and is all law and is harsh, um, and I suppose it's possible that some people might even imagine a God who can help in small ways in this world, but they wouldn't dare to believe could promise them any life beyond this death. So what's the remedy for that? I mean, what when we, 
and it's easy for us to look out at the world, you know, whoever is on Twitter making fun of Christians, it's easy to look at them. And, but what about in our own lives as Christians? How do we prevent ourselves? What do we need to keep us from falling into that way of thinking? Well, first off, we have to take our focus a bit off of this world and put it on that world and the way that Christ spoke. Um, That's relevant to our own lives to recognize that, you know, when my life isn't all health and wealth and prosperity, it's okay. Uh, It's okay because I have a promise of life in the next world that will, uh, that is the answer to the unanswerable injustices and ills and and troubles of this life. Um, That same shift of focus, I think, is is a path to um, evangelism to the non-believer. It must be incredibly sad to live in a world in which you believe that what you see is all there is. Um, I've had many people. I've had many people tell me this after I bring them communion in their home. Um, if they're they're aged and unable to get out, they'll say, "I just don't understand how people who don't know the Lord can can live in this world." Yeah. Um, and they're on to something. So so to lift people's eyes from this age to that age to say, "Well, have you even considered this possibility?" To just and don't you don't have to persuade them or convince them or argue with them. You just have to present them with God's word um, and let God's word do its work. Um, and, and that's kind of the answer to a, a, a temporal only outlook um, in life. Yeah. As St. As Paul says in first Corinthians 15, if in this life we have hope, then we are only, we are to be pitied above all men if that's all we've got, but we've gotten more. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he takes with them all who are his people to that age to come, the age of the resurrection. Pastor Nate Hill is pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us today with Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 20 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.